manifested, where spiritual gifts are being exercised, where people are worshipping, your kids will pick up a lot more than you realize. And you know, the, when you read about the great days of Israel and the glory coming down at the tabernacle and the presence of God filling the place, kids were there. Kids were there. So, you're going through a period of transition. It's tough if you're parents when things are not easy. The kids work. But as a father in God, I want to say to you, trust in the presence of God. Trust in what He is doing. And believe for your kids. So, well done, you three boys. You've helped me with my sermon. That's great. Well, we're going to continue this morning our series on living in the day of favour. We've looked at Isaiah 59, Isaiah 60, and Isaiah 61. And and this morning, rather, we come to Isaiah 61. It's the third one. And I've called it God's favour in restoration. So please turn to Isaiah 61. I'll read the whole chapter to you. Um, as I was saying last week, 
Uh, Isaiah was not just a prophet, he was a poet, so there's imagery, there's allusions, and so on, that help us to understand what this is saying. And then, then I'll get it, we'll get into the word. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastation. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their loss. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my soul shall exult in God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So we are on a prophetic peak in this chapter. You remember last week we talked about the different prophetic peaks that are there in the book of Isaiah. We are in the prophetic peak in the era of which we live now and which was inaugurated by Jesus. So we come to our third in the series, Living in the Day of Favor. We've seen God's favor in redemption, God's favor in renewal, and now God's favor in restoration. And it's in this chapter that we get the expression that has given the title of the series. In verse 2, it talks about the proclamation of the Lord's favor. It is a proclamation 
in prophecy regarding the coming of the Lord Jesus, the establishing of his kingdom, and the era of what we might call the day of grace, the day of the church. Now, sadly, just as Israel did not in obey God in the Old Testament when it came to the day of Jubilee, if you remember back to the first one, the day of Jubilee was announced in, the, in Leviticus chapter 21. The Jewish people hardly ever kept that in the whole of their history, right up until the coming of Jesus. And it's one of the reasons why they were taken into captivity. Now, it begs the question as to whether the New Testament church generally is living in obedience to the full counsel of what Scripture teaches about the character, power, and hope that it should have in the church. Now, it is true that in the last 50 years or so, many churches have been renewed. There has been what we might call the charismatic movement. There have been various outpourings of the Holy Spirit. There have been times like Toronto, Pensacola, Asbury recently, where the Spirit of God has been outpoured. But it's very important for us not just to see those outpourings of the Spirit as a kind of bit of blessing to keep our momentum going, but God has a bigger plan. And that bigger plan is that the church should be living in the power, holiness, doctrine, and lifestyle of the early church. Now, that is actually something that makes New Frontiers distinctive as a church movement. Now, it's not the only church movement that believes this, but it is, I believe, in the vanguard of what God is doing in terms of church planting, and that's why we're planting, into church, uh, the dynamics of worship and evangelism, social action, all of those things are all there in the book of Acts. And if it were not in the vanguard, I would get out of it and get into what was. just want to say that. Now, this day of favor, God gave me as a promise when, if you remember back to the first talk, was not just that this was going to be a better year. It was an encouragement to believe that all the promises in the Word of God for us as a redeemed people are valid. They are certain. A day of favor does not mean that we're going to sail through life with nothing ever going wrong and that there will not be any battles or disappointments or trials. No, the day of favor God has promised does have amazing miracles, a promise of joy, freedom, deliverance, answered prayers, promises fulfilled. But also, when difficulties, trials, opposition, suffering, 
and things apparently not working out, the favor of God is still operational. It is a day of grace as well as favor. In the old hymn, it says, Praise Him for His grace and favor to our fathers in distress. So, whatever we're going through, the favor of God is demonstrated by the incredible grace He gives as He works in every circumstance of life to bring us to glory and maturity, even when things are difficult and painful. So, as we unpack this chapter, let's see how this promised day of favour affects us here in Fredericton on this day. Now, the main reason we can lay hold of the promises in Isaiah 61 and see that they are relevant for us is that Jesus quoted this chapter when he began his public ministry. In Luke 4, we read about how Jesus began his ministry and how he was already beginning to build a following. And then if you read the narrative, particularly in Luke's Gospel, verse chapter 4 and verse 16, we see him coming to the synagogue in Nazareth the town where he grew up and would have been very well known. And he reads the prophecy from Isaiah 61. It's like him coming to church, coming from the back of the church, coming down the front, picking up the scroll and reading. And it's like he's saying, listen up everyone, what Isaiah was prophesying about this day of favor this day of Jubilee has arrived. I'm here to bring liberty to the captives, open the eyes of the blind, to free the oppressed. You could feel the unrest beginning to rustle through the congregation. Now, the interesting thing is that Jesus did not actually finish the quote from Isaiah. In the passage we read from Isaiah 61, he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, back in the 90s, there was a popular worship song that came out that had all of those lines, and I didn't sing it because I didn't think it was appropriate. Because the day of vengeance has not yet arrived. You see, Jesus stopped short and did not finish the quote. The reason is that although there will one day be a day of vengeance when God will judge the whole world, when the world as we know it will be over, history will be wound up, and mankind as we know it now will be finished. A day when rulers, governments, nations, and the wicked will be judged. Jesus will come back and put everything that is wrong under his judgment, and a whole new order will be recreated in the new heavens and the new earth. So Jesus leaves that bit out. He talks about the day of favor, but Isaiah prophesies, that's why I said it's important to know which peak of the mountain you're on, 
when we're reading Scripture. Now, I get unbelievers often saying to me, if there is a God, why doesn't he do something about all the terrible wrongs in the world, the injustices, the pain, the suffering, the natural disasters, the wars, the famine, and all the other terrible things we can see on our newscasts almost on a daily basis? The answer to that is God has done something and he will do something. Isaiah is prophesying about two universe-shattering events. One, the coming of Jesus, and two, the end of the age. Now, when Jesus says to the people in Nazareth that this prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled in their hearing, he is proclaiming that we are now living in the day of deliverance, of rest, of favor, of grace. Not the day of vengeance, of judgment, of God's wrath poured out against sinful humanity and creation, but is out of joint with its creator. No, that will come. But this is the day of favor. And this is the day, the era in which we live now. And our response to this will save us in that day of wrath, the day of vengeance, when each one of us will stand before God. Now, although Isaiah is prophesying about what could appear to be an individualistic message to each one of us about our personal liberation, healing, and wholeness, which he is, there is a much wider implication to this prophecy regarding the impact of the people of God, the church, on the wider world. Implied in this prophecy is the big picture plan God has that goes right back to the book of Genesis. I love the way the Bible commentates on itself. It is the big story of the Bible. When God said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply, God's plan has always been to have a people, a family of people in the earth who will love him, give him glory, obey him, and worship him. The Old Testament story of the formation of the nation of Israel would be the prototype of the perfect plan where there would be a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and in whom he would make his dwelling. God living among his people. Isaiah 61 being fulfilled in Jesus shows us some of the ways in which this perfect plan of God is to be fulfilled. So, my purpose in teaching this is to bring us to a greater realization of our potential as a people and to function as God desires us to be the kind of church that God intended us to be and that we can become. So I'm going to do the usual preacher thing and put this under three main headings. And we're going to look at this under these headings. Firstly, the meaning of the anointing. 
secondly, the achievement of the anointing. And thirdly, living in the anointing. So let's take the first one, the meaning of the anointing. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me. Now, we often use the word anointing. We use it, we can use it very casually. Oh, the worship had a real anointing in it this morning. Or that preacher had a great anointing in him. Or we can use it in all kinds of ways. That worship thing's got a great anointing in it. And uh, we can sometimes recognize it, but not be quite sure how to define it. I love this story of one of the great Pentecostal pioneers. His name was Ivan Spencer. And back in the 1920s when the Holy Spirit was moving and uh, the Pentecostal church was coming alive in the Spirit, there was a Bible college in one of the southern states in America, a Pentecostal Bible college. And Ivan Spencer signed up. He was a young man. And he was very passionate for God. And uh, he was going to all electives, but he had one major problem. He had a terrible stutter. Now, this was already beginning to be a problem. And when it got to the preaching class, the guy who was teaching the class how to preach did not want to embarrass Ivan. So he said to him, you don't actually have to do this. But Ivan was insistent. And he managed to get the students to turn to Isaiah 61. And he started to read. And it was very potent. Word, 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 word. By the time he got to the word anointing, the presence of God was so strongly on him that the glory of God fell upon all those students and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. True story. The anointing of the Spirit can take the weakest and the most feeble and give it power, give it energy, give it life because the anointing is to do with God's presence. Now in the Old Testament, the anointing with oil was a symbol of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And there were three types of people who were anointed. The prophets, the priests, and the kings. There was a sense of consecration to God, a separation from sin, and an equipping to function. Now this actually goes back to the Garden of Eden. Again, Bible commentating on itself. Where Adam was able to hear God's voice and speak his word. He was created with what we might call a prophetic dimension. He was also priestly in as much as he was the mouthpiece of praise for the whole of creation. So the whole of creation gave glory to God, but it was Adam in his humanity who was the mouthpiece of praise. So we can call him the priest of creation. 
He also had delegated authority from God to rule over the earth, govern it, tend it, and care for it. You know that great Bob Dylan song about God, about Adam naming all the animals. Thanks for a bit. Um, he was to name the animals and be the supreme ingredient in God's creation. Of course, the fall meant that all of those dimensions in which he related with God were lost. And the big story of the Bible, as it unfolds, is that we see these three classes of people restoring what Adam had lost. So we get the prophets. The prophet was to be God's mouthpiece. Deuteronomy 18 says, What? I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my word in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So the prophet would understand God's purpose, and as he waits upon God through visions, dreams, and revelations, he would impart God's word to the people. Now, there are two Hebrew words that describe the prophets. One is translated as seer. He would see. He would see in the realm of the spirit. And the other word, a lovely Hebrew word, a navi. He was a gusher. So he would both see and gush out the word of God. And he would reveal God's law, convince of sin, and awaken the people to the purposes of God. And that's all Old Testament. Then there were the priests. The priests was to represent man to God and was appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices for the sins of the people and to intercede before God on behalf of the people. And then the third type of people who were to be anointed were the kings. And they were to bring rule and government. Now, all of these ministries in the Old Testament scriptures were inaugurated with the anointing of oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit being upon them. Now, the actual Hebrew word for anointing, Mishra, has morphed into the word Messiah. So, Messiah and anointing go together. We also read that the holy vessels in the tabernacle and the temple were also anointed with oil as a symbol of consecration. Now, knowing a little of this background helps us to understand Isaiah's usage of the word anointing and Jesus' identification with it as he proclaims his messianic ministry as the anointed Messiah. When Jesus identified himself with the prophecy, he was declaring himself to be the prophet. He was the Word made flesh. He was God's articulated speech to the human race. He revealed God's mind, God's will, and God's purpose. He authenticated his message by doing what Isaiah said, by bringing healing and deliverance. He was also the anointed priest. Now, the priest, as I've already said, in the Old Testament, represented man to God. His foremost task was to offer a sacrifice for the sin of the people. Now, Jesus was both the priest 
and the sacrifice. And that is why the writer to the Hebrews says, for it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifice for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Why? Because this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. So Jesus was anointed as a priest. Jesus was anointed as a king. Now, in human terms, Jesus was from the royal line of David. But Jesus was in the bosom of the Father. He's God and he's always been king. He was then and he is now. And he came to earth demonstrating that kingship. We sang this morning in that worship song about Jesus bringing heaven to earth. He is the king. He had authority over demons, over sickness, over creation, over death itself by his resurrection from the dead. And in his ascension, we see him in his glory, crowned with glory and honor, given a name that is above every name, as he's totally, singly, single-handedly defeated Satan at the cross, risen from the dead, burst through the heavens, the angels receive him. He comes before his father's throne and his father says, Well done, son, I crown you with glory and honor. I give you a name that is above every name. At your name, every knee's going to bow. Oh, I'm a stop and so excited. Oh, we're going to preach all that. <laughs> in his ascension, Jesus, in his kingly rule, is a king to us. So that's the meaning of anointing. Now let's look at the achievement of the anointing. As Jesus proclaimed this Isaiah prophecy, he was announcing his mission. He did what the prophecy said. And here today, in the church, in this day of favor, we can receive the benefits of all that Jesus accomplished. And there are four or five things in the chapter as we go through it. So let's just take these. First of all, salvation. Good news to the afflicted and binding up of the brokenhearted. Now, sin is an affliction that dominates the human race. Every single person born has this deep scar of affliction dominating their thinking, their actions, their behavior, affecting their emotions, their identity, their reason for living. Every human problem exists because of sin. It causes fear, anxiety, shame, condemnation. Now, we can never be fully human as God intended us to be until our sin problem is dealt with. Jesus' mission was to deal with it, and that is why he had to die. This identification with Isaiah's prophecy, with all its expectation of a day of favor, is because Jesus also identifies with Isaiah 53. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as the Lord lays upon him the iniquities of us all. I love this quote 
of one of my favourite theologians, John Calvin. He says this, A fountain of life goes down to death. He who sustains the universe dies in weakness. He who delivers from fear dies in horror. He was willing to be wounded, disfigured, whipped, blow after blow. This is the medicine that heals us. He was imprisoned. We are set free. He was exposed to all outrage. We are raised in honour. He suffered the pain of death. We are risen with him and the kingdom of heaven is ours. One of the greatest theological statements I've ever read. Wonderful. He came to bring salvation. He came to bring deliverance. Jesus came to bring liberty to captives. He frees us from rejection, fear, anxiety, the power of the devil, curses of words spoken over us. Anything that binds the human spirit will yield to Jesus, our deliverer, if we come to him. There are massive issues in today's world. It's the issue of mental health. And I don't say this lightly, and I don't say it superficially. It's a complex and relevant issue. Depression, anxiety, anything that robs us of peace. Jesus came to bring deliverance. Deliverance for the body. He came to bring life in the Spirit. This prophecy uses imagery that helps us understand the work of the Spirit in us. It talks about a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Now what he's doing there is describing the anointed priest. This is a priest's turban. We are adorned with royal priestly robes as we are clothed with the Spirit. That's an expression that's used in the New Testament description of the Spirit. Jesus said, you will be clothed with power. So we put on that clothing. We have a gladness, and Isaiah then goes on to call it a mantle of praise. And when the Spirit comes, you praise God. That's why the gift of tongues is so special. We can't, we, we, we run out of words, and so often where people are baptized in the Spirit, they will start to speak in tongues. We also have a hope of His coming. We live in the favorable year of the Lord, but we know the day of vengeance is coming. But we have no fear of that day. We look forward to His glorious appearing. Now, I'm 78 years old. I don't know how much longer I've got on this earth, but I live with a daily expectation of Jesus coming. And I hope I'm still alive when He comes. And the way the world is going, I would not be surprised if I am. He is coming. Now, don't get muddled up with all sorts of funny prophetic things that you read, that you see on YouTube and cheap Christian paperbacks. Don't go there. Go to the Bible. See what the Bible says. And, you know, if I said to you, do you think Jesus will come tomorrow? 
I think probably most of you would say, well, no, not, not tomorrow. Unless it's Jesus says, the Son of Man is coming on a day you think not. Work that out. We also grow to maturity. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. God is committed to our growth. No longer swayed by every wind of doctrine or persuaded by the latest paperback or podcast. We are grounded in the Word of God, growing up into all aspects in Him. The whole of the book of Ephesians is about life in the Spirit through our salvation in order that the church may be rooted and grounded in love. And that's the glorious description of the church. So that's the achievement of the anointing. I'm going to draw this to begin to draw this to a conclusion by my third point, which is living in the anointing. Jesus, in fulfilling this prophecy, is the anointed preacher, renewing the world. The Messiah will preach into existence his new liberated people, who will pray into existence his new redeemed world. Just to say, get behind this church plan. Pray for them. And let me just, uh, again, as an aside, having intended to say this, I felt good preaching again there for everyone that goes over the next 10, 15 years. God will give you another 10 for everyone who does. I've always seen a big church in Fredericton living out these values. Now you've got to fight for that in prayer. It's not going to happen if you just come and be a pew-sitter. You've got to fight for it in prayer. Be at the prayer meeting. God, save sinners. Save people. You know, when I was here last time, I, I had a vision. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. I had a vision for this church making a huge impact on First Nations people. And when Rosie and I were flying back, we had three hours in Halifax Airport. Now, what do you do when you're stuck in an airport for three hours? Well, Rosie used to sit in there drinking her coffee and um, reading and, I'm sure, praying as well, because she's a godly woman. I was walking up and down, praying and crying to God for this church. And I found myself speaking in a tongue that I'd never spoken before. And I suddenly realized that the the phonics of what was coming out of my mouth was like some of the First Nation names that I'd seen on the signboard as I'd driven through New Brunswick. And I felt God giving me an incredible burden in prayer for First Nation people. Now, let me encourage you. Believe God. God is a multicultural God. He's the God of everything. I believe you will see this place absolutely flooded with people. It's not God is taking away a few to do something over there. No, he's planting so that the roots here can grow more shoots and grow even more. I'm prophesying this over you, but when you have a prophecy, you have to know what to do with it. You say it 
we say it is. So, when we use the word anointing, we are actually talking about a critical experience, a specific moment when God comes upon us and within us. The oil was poured, so the oil was poured on us. The anointing in the Old Testament was a specific act of oil poured on the head. Now, in the New Testament, the anointing is a specific action of the Spirit coming upon us with an ongoing effect of empowering, equipping, reassuring, awakening, and bringing us into a living relationship with the Father. So let us look at those specific experiences. Hello, can, can you say the please? So let's look at these specific experiences. Okay? There are what I call the crisis experiences of the Spirit. The first of these is, a, is new birth. And the word anointing is associated with the new birth. In John's epistle, the first John, chapter 2, he's talking about sin and our relationship with God and things to do with the new birth. And he says we have an anointing which abides. So when we become Christians, we are anointed with the Spirit. We have the Spirit. He's in us. He's changed us. Everything's become new. We're saved. We have the likeness of Christ. He's, he's in us. But that's not all. You see, Jesus told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from on high. Yeah, the Spirit had been breathed into them. Jesus breathed into them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. But there was a specific anointing, what we might call a baptism or a filling. It doesn't matter what word you use. It's a flooding with, it's a clothing with the Spirit. Now, there are three important things that happen when we are flooded with the Spirit, when we're baptized in the Spirit. One is that we are empowered. I was a gospel preacher in my teens, never saw anybody saved. I sought God for the baptism in the Spirit, was baptized in the Spirit. The next time I preached, it was the same message, but 20 responses. That's the difference. When you're baptized in the Spirit, you are baptized with power. Another aspect of the Spirit is that it is a gateway into the supernatural. That's why speaking in tongues is such an important gift. It's not the only gift, and it's, it, it, it's not, we don't want to kind of get hyped up about, about that, but speaking in tongues brings you into a supernatural dimension and usually is a platform to let other gifts cooperate. It's a gateway into the supernatural. The third thing about the Holy Spirit, now we may not realize this, but when we read about the Spirit, in Paul's epistles, he is writing to a people who've already had this experience. So, in, in the book of Romans, where Paul is writing about the Spirit, he is writing about what the Spirit does through the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And so, it is through the Spirit that we make intercession. Romans 8, we don't know how to pray. 
so we come before him and the Spirit makes intercession through us. In the, in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, we are sealed with the Spirit. Now Paul was writing to people who'd been flooded with the Spirit, but he then says, go on being filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Now the tense of the Greek there is what we call the present continuous tense. It is go on being filled with the Spirit. So we keep coming, we keep receiving. Now there are also special anointings that come upon us. So it says, where, you remember when Paul was before Elimus, it says, and Paul filled with the Spirit. Well, of course he was filled with the Spirit, but it was like he was filled for that situation. Another time, Peter, and Peter filled with the Spirit. So there's one baptism of the Spirit, there are many fillings of the Spirit. And we go on into the book of Galatians, again, Paul is writing to people who are filled with the Spirit, who says that we are to walk in the Spirit. Now, if you're going to walk, you have to put one leg in front of another. In other words, you just don't stand still and be passive. Walking in the Spirit is an action. And the Greek word that's used in the middle of Galatians for walk is a word peripateo. And it's where we get the English word peripatetic. Peripatetic means to walk about. So the whole realm of life's activities we conduct in the Spirit. A Christian should never be bored. A Christian, if they are sleepless, should never be anxious. Pray in the Spirit. Keep ministering and praying and serving and worshipping. That's how we walk in the Spirit. But a little bit later in Galatians 5, it says, and some translations say, walk in the Spirit. Other translations say, keep in step with the Spirit. The Greek word, that's a different Greek word, stoichia, and it means to walk in line. Now, we Brits, we Brits, know how to do ceremony. You all saw the Queen's funeral, you all saw the, uh, the King's coronation. Those soldiers worked for hours to keep in step with one another. And if anyone had missed it, they'd have probably been shot. No, no, we couldn't. We, would, we wouldn't have done that. That is the word that Paul used. Keep in step with the Spirit. So there is a relational aspect to that. That means we don't fall out with one another. We don't criticize one another. We support one another. When they're weak, we prop them up and we help them. If they do something wrong, we don't condemn them, we restore them and love them. We develop relationships. And it's the Holy Spirit who helps us to do that. The baptism in the Spirit is a lot more than just me being able to speak in tongues. It's a whole lifestyle. And so this is what Isaiah is prophesying. He is prophesying this new community, flooded with the Spirit, energized with the Spirit, filled with power, filled with confidence, 
righteousness and praise springing up, being the people of God, being the church that Jesus died for, a glorious, powerful, resplendent church. Amen. Let's stand. I'm going to pray over you. We're not going to have a ministry time of such this morning. You know, just take the word and go and do it. Do it in your bedroom, in your lounge with your kids while you're walking out in the woods or in the snow, whatever it is you have here. Just go, just go and live your life flooded with the Spirit. But I want to pray over you. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for its history. And I thank you that even though there have been forces of darkness trying to rob it and attack it with lies, half-truths, things that are not right, Lord, I thank you that your church stands firm. And I pray that Christ's central presence will be a church where oaks of righteousness are planted, their roots going deep into the river of life, flooded with the power of the Holy Spirit, energized with prophetic witness, with priestly ministry to those who are in need, and with a kingly authority, because this church is anointed. Over these days, weeks, years ahead, I pray, let your Spirit flood this church. Let it be flooded with glory. Let it come alive. Let it be like a city ablaze. Lord God, we pray, reach every people group in this nation. Bring glory to your name. Let your Spirit come. May we be able to say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Let's declare that together. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Amen. Amen.